Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. You are within the sound of my voice. I know some of you are now because I got a lot of new followers recently. Thank you. Please, if you would, go to binawake.com, subscribe with your email address. Let's take some quick housekeeping off the top, shall we? Because uh, I want to thank everybody. I did recently get some a uh, bunch of new signups for the Substack, some new followers on Twitter that might correspond to sub uh, uh, podcast subscriptions as well. Substack's a little weird with that. So I just want to remind you, Remind you, the listener, and thank you so much for listening, that between now and the one-year anniversary of BeenAwake.com, 66 days left as I record this on the 3rd of, uh, of, of July, I am offering a lifetime discount to the premium content and community that we're building here. The university system wants to keep you from learning philosophy by hiding in their ivory tower and charging you a king's ransom for the privilege of their tutelage. The BeenAwake project for better sense-making gives you the same tools free from the stink of Marxism for the price of a meal at Chipotle. So what are you waiting for? It's time to level up your reality. When you join, you get full access to the archives, instant ability to comment on posts, instant access to interviews. That's something I'm implementing going forward, supporter Q&As, which we'll do eventually, and so much more. I hope everybody had a good week. We're going to um, we're gonna go through the week at binawake.com. I had an interview released on Monday with Nick Ashley. I have another interview coming out with Adam Patrick. I just sat down with James Gentleman. Um, I think I'm going to sit down with a guy named Jeremiah next week. Another guy, I believe, named another guy from the Borderless podcast probably in the next few weeks. So, hey, you know, we're getting some traction. We're moving the ideas forward. And, we're, you know, we're helping people. We're helping people have some better sense making about things. That's that is my mission. That's what I'm trying to do here. Before I get into some, before I get into the pieces that I wrote this week, including the one that will go probably go down as my most watched or my most listened to read uh, piece in in the first year, I always do. If you haven't listened, if you haven't left li- let, if you haven't yet listened to one of my interviews, I do. I like to put a little promo video together where I edit out different parts of the conversation and kind of create it. So I'm just going to play that for you as a little bit of a teaser. So you go check out that episode with Nick Ashley. Uh, it was really, it's a really fun guy. He is hilarious, by the way. Go follow him on Twitter. If you enjoy, you know, edgy, sometimes offensive humor, he's just awesome. And he's just the sweetest guy. Like, I think that really comes out when we talk is kind of, he's just, he's just the nicest guy as well behind the scenes, which is always interesting in these cases. So I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of a taste for, if you haven't listened to an interview of mine, what did that sounds like at the beginning? So for like a philosophy or an ideology, I strongly identify with Austro-Libertarianism. And the reason is because I feel like libertarianism doesn't do enough. I don't like to call myself an anarchist to regular old people because they assume Antifa, Molotov throwing, baseball bat wielding or, you know, bike lock wielding or whatever it is. And then I got a little libertarian about the situation if you if you follow my drift and started talking mm-hmm. about the necessity of property rights she's like but i thought you were an anarchist yeah came up with i think it might have been toad 
who called me that whenever my first account got banned and he posted a screenshot of like my profile not loading and he said Nicholas Ashley you couldn't keep away from the sun or something like that I'm like that's that's it right there it's perfect the first real like incredible outrage and ruckus I caused I told him he was being a bitch the joke about flying too close to the sun is I'm always like doing really really borderline shit that could that could be probably close to bannable if I got enough reports it was an interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. And thanks, Nick, for coming on. He's had me on the Individualist Podcast and the Tower Power Hour, both shows that I would recommend you subscribe to. Tower Power Hour is a lot of fun. I hope to get back on that show soon. We've got three articles that I wrote this week. Um, and then, you know, also a couple of tweets that went wide, but we're going to talk about that in the piece. I was really proud of the way this Your Marching Orders for CRT came out um, because I was, you know, kind of paying attention to James Lindsay's profile and he's made some recent news appearances. And uh, who's the other guy? Michael Rufo is the other one. Michael Rufo seems to be, and I'm not trying to be disparaging when I say this, but he seems to be like the approved person that you can talk to. Whereas James Lindsay is the, um, the person you're not supposed to talk to about these things. And it's interesting. They seem to have different, they seem to have different approaches. Um, the impetus in part for this was when James Lindsay called Mark Lamont Hill a communist in a quote tweet, which was kind of funny. But this is um, this piece is, if I could serve it up like this, is a meditation on on narrative. Right. This piece is, and specifically the type of narrative that we encounter and consume. In America, specifically, if you're plugged into the corporate press, which we all are, we all we all are we all are pro. Um, we all are part of the uh, larger corporate narrative, whether we want to be or not, right? Just like we're all, just like for better or worse, you know, you are you are a product of your environments and, you know, where you came from and you can overcome it or you can rise to it. It just depends on where you started that, you know, the, to, where, to the degree to which, which answer you want to take. But so we can't, you know, as much as my preference would be to operate outside of, of their narrative and their paradigm. I, of course, recognize the fact that they are the dominant narrative, right? So most people, <clears throat> most people either actively or passively get their information from these larger corporate apparatuses. And by corporate apparatuses, I'm referring to institutions like the Associated Press, obviously the big players of CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, some of the Newsmax people. Um, it's, it's, you know, in particular, it's also like this, it's also this particular like TV format, right? You might think about it this way. It's kind of, it, it is as far as what, what this piece is a meditation on, because this piece is a little more artistic in nature, which is why I'm kind of giving it this build up. because if you read it, it's very, very clear. But I think if you're just listening to it, it might be kind of be like, all right, I don't really understand what's going on. So I wanted to, I wanted to kind of, I wanted to kind of set it up like that because uh, to, you know, to make sure you have the right context for how we're approaching this piece. The important part of this is the way in which people are purposefully pitted against each other. And like I said, this TV, uh, the television medium, right? That cable's new, the cable news medium of a seven sec, you know, seven minutes, and then we go to commercial, and then three minutes, and then we go to commercial, and then 10 minutes, and then we go to commercial. It narrows the, it narrows the degree to which you can communicate, right? It's kind of like Twitter, because Twitter, you only have 280 characters. So maybe cable news can be said could be is the precursor of Twitter. That's kind of funny. Um, but but Twitter has these limited characters. So when you tweet, it's you can't you can never give your full thought of a situation. And so 
the question then becomes, if you want to be good at Twitter, is how can you convey what you need to convey in the fewest number of characters possible? Now, that's actually a very worthwhile exercise to engage in. I think it's useful. But what I like to say is, you know, I might tweet something. What I, what I say is different from what I tweet, and what I tweet is different from what I write, and what I write is different from what I'll record in a podcast, and what I've recorded in a podcast is different from what I'll say to my friends, from what I'll say to a stranger, from what I'd, from, from what I'd say to a customer of mine. But I still use, <clears throat> but I'm still using the same ideological tools, the same tools and ideas for each of those things. I'm just applying them in different contexts, in different mediums, and trying to and trying to maximize the ability to which I can be effective at communicating an idea. You know, like for example, I am on Instagram. You can follow me there at the LB Moniz, but really Twitter is the one, Twitter is the platform that I'm most active on because it's uh, you know, it's most conducive, I think, to writers. That's that's pretty well established at this point. So like my Instagram is not necessarily the best, but it is there. And you can kind of look at tweets and you can, you know, get the articles as they release if you miss the email in the morning and all that stuff. I'm on, I should be on all social media at the LB Muniz. You can go to binawake.com slash follow or no follow.binawake.com and uh, see where, see where you will see where I am. But like I said, I'm mostly, I'm, I'm either writing in Substack or I'm on Twitter pretty much. Greetings citizen. This is the piece. Greetings citizen. Congratulations. You have been selected for service in the culture wars of American democracy. While most choose to watch, you have made the brave choice today of becoming a combatant. Now is a very special time in the culture wars of American democracy. We have just released a new version called CRT. We've been beta testing this model for a few years now, and we are very excited for you to try it out. Please choose which side you want to play as and find your marching orders below. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of news that leads you nowhere? Ready to take ownership of your own thought? Then you need to level up your reality and join the Been Awake Project for better sense making. Every post is a vaccine against misinformation. So sign up today with your email and never miss a dose because the next variant is just around the corner. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Congratulations, citizen. You have just chosen to take the left perspective on CRT. You have chosen well, as you always do when you choose the culture wars of American democracy. Because you have chosen the left, here's what you need to know how to say Here's, here's what you need to know how to say on social media. CRT is not taught to children. CRT, or critical race theory, has nothing to do with Marxism. CRT is a very narrow legal ideology that only a couple of people talk about in academia. CRT isn't about intersectionality. That's completely different. CRT isn't about pedagogy. That's completely different. CRT means teaching people that racism is bad. CRT isn't about whiteness. CRT is about anti-racism. CRT is about showing how race shapes our existence. Congratulations, new member of the left. You are now prepared to fight in the culture wars of American democracy. Maybe one day I'll have a, I'll have a, like a little soundboard next to me because I was kind of thinking of like, oh, what if I could like play the little like, little that, that little ticking thing, uh, you know, like the Morse code telegram sound. It's kind of thinking of like that as I was um, conceptualizing how I was going to, how I was going to deliver this piece in the podcast. And here's the, here's the other version. Congratulations, citizen. You have chosen to take the right perspective on CRT. You have chosen well, as you always do when you choose the culture wars of American democracy, because you have chosen the right, here's what you need to know how to say on social media. CRT is being taught to our children. CRT is Marxist. CRT is communist. 
CRT started in academia, but is now infecting American culture. CRT, intersectionality, pedagogy, and whiteness are all the same thing. CRT means teaching people that white people are awful. CRT is about making everything about race. CRT is anti-American. Congratulations, new member of the right. You are now prepared to fight in the culture wars of American democracy. Oh, are you still here? Well, this is, uh, this is odd. You know, normally people take one of the two choices above. They take the left or the right, and then they just go argue on Twitter and Facebook. If you're still here reading this piece, I guess you're not interested in the culture wars of American democracy. So here's what you need to know about CRT. Critical race theory is a school of thought that has its roots in Marxism and more broadly Hegelianism. Technically speaking, though, CRT is not a strict Marxist ideology, but there is a lot of crossover amongst the academics, and many of them would certainly view Marx in a positive light. The reason why it's not a strict Marxist school of thought is that because some of Marx's early adherents took his ideas and coined what they termed critical theory. These academics, most of them in the United States, wanted to move beyond Marxism and its narrow class analysis and instead incorporate different ideas within the eternal struggle put forth by Marxism. When communism was shown to be an abysmal failure on all fronts, most of the neo-Marxists adopted a more general, quote, critical lens, which is to say they abandoned the division of society between the proletariat and bourgeoisie and instead chose to analyze differences between genders and races as the fundamental oppositions of humanity. This is also where we get the idea of intersectionality from, as it attempted to delineate the unique ways in which it is different to face something like the legal system in the USA, not just as a woman or as an individual of African descent, but as a black woman. So there were people like Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw who put forth these ideas, just as Karl Marx put forth ideas a century before her. Then came the people who took their ideas and attempted to apply them elsewhere. This tendency to take an idea from one place and apply it elsewhere is inevitable in human thought. There will always be the original set of ideas put forth and what comes after it. There is always, there is always the philosopher and his followers. And that's going to be different. There's no such thing as pure thought. Because in that ideas can be conceptualized as a school of thought, they must be acted out by imperfect beings, aka humanity. So that was a fun little piece. I, um, so you see what I'm, you see hopefully the, what I'm driving at there with the degree to which most of this is most of what people are doing on social media, you know, not, not necessarily people with a profile and like active content creators. It's basically just adopting one of those two talking points. And if we want to even extrapolate, we don't even need to focus on social media, just in your everyday life. That is um, just in your everyday life. That's how most people are going to, most people are going to put the world together. Most people are going to put the world together in terms of left and right. And they don't even use the terms left and right. That was kind of funny because last night I was um, out with some people and we were walking from, you know, one nightclub to another. And we had some, you know, uh, we had some women that joined us and I didn't really know any of them well at all. Met them that night, but I kind of ended up, you know, trying to make sure that they got to their destination because I didn't. I, I, I couldn't quite leave. I, I, I didn't feel right about, you know, leaving them stumbling behind. Um, but it was interesting kind of just listening to them talk because they, they were so drunk that they were forgetting I was there. <laughs> but at one point, they were talking about the guys that I was with. And they said, oh, and, and they're Republicans. And they're conservatives. 
and it was a it was a great reminder that no matter how far how deep i am in this politicalness in this political in this philosophical realm and and in this political realm no matter how much i'm commenting on it most people are still just thinking things are in terms of liberal and conservative if you're wondering what i said to her by the way i i kind of looked at her and i said what kind of question is that and she kind of and she kind of let it go and i just kind of quipped that i'm more dangerous than a conservative Let's define paradox. If you've been listening to the show or reading the pages have been awake for a bit, you might have heard me refer to, the, to identity as a paradox. While in full disclosure, I haven't completely fleshed the idea out, it would be useful for us to take a look at what a paradox is. For our, purpose, for our purposes, we won't be applying the term to anything yet. I just want to store some information from other sources as to what the word means. If you're interested in my interpretation of each of these definitions, you should listen to this week's show, which is, hey, what you're doing right now. So thank you. So Webster's Dictionary says that a paradox is a tenet contrary to received opinion or two, a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true or a self-contradictory statement that at first seems true, or C, an argument that apparently derives self-contradictory conclusions by valid deductions from acceptable premises. And then the third definition is one, such as a person, situation, or action, having seemingly contradictory qualities or phases. So for as far as Webster is concerned, the definitions that I am playing off of is 2C, which is an argument that apparently derives self-contradictory conclusions by valid deductions from acceptable premises. And number three, which is a person's situation or action having seemingly contradictory qualities or phases. Let's keep going and then we'll kind of, I'll probably, I'm gonna talk a little bit about what I think the paradox of identity is at the end. So we're gonna go to Oxford, AKA Google next. It's a noun. First definition reads, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. In a paradox, he has discovered that stepping back from his job has increased the rewards he gleans from it. That's the, that's the example. Further things, a statement of proposition, a statement or proposition that, despite sound or apparently sound reasoning from acceptable premises, leads to a conclusion that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or self-contradictory. Quote, here's a quote, a potentially serious conflict between quantum mechanics and the general theory of relativity is known as the information paradox. Another definition, a situation, person, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. And then, um, and then it says, a mid-16th century, originally denoting a statement contrary to accepted opinion, violate Latin from Greek, paradoxon, contrary opinion, neuter adjective uses the noun from para, distinct, doxa, opinion. So para, distinct, from, and doxa, opinion. That's the root of paradox. Wikipedia says that a paradox is a logically self-contradictory st statement or a statement that runs contrary to one's expectations. It is a statement that, despite apparently valid reasoning from true premises, leads to a seemingly self-contradictory or logically unacceptable conclusion. A paradox usually involves contradictory yet interrelated elements that exist simultaneously and persist over time. In logic, many paradoxes exist which are known to be invalid arguments but which are nevertheless valuable in promoting critical thinking. 
while other paradoxes have revealed errors and definitions which were assumed to be rigorous and have caused axioms of mathematics and logic to be reexamined. One example is Russell's paradox, which questions whether a list of all the lists that do not contain themselves would include itself and showed that attempts to found set theory on the identification of sets with properties or predicates were flawed. Others, such as Curry's paradox, cannot be easily resolved by making foundational changes in a logical system. Examples outside logic include the ship of Theseus from philosophy, a paradox which questions whether a ship repaired over time by replacing each and all of its wooden parts one at a time would remain the same ship. Paradoxes can also take the form of images or other media. For example, MC, MC Escher featured perspective-based paradoxes in many of his drawings with walls that were regarded as floors from other points of view and stairs that appeared to climb endlessly. In common usage, the word paradox often refers to statements that are ironic or unexpected, such as the paradox that standing is more tiring than walking. That's obviously not what we're talking about. So I want to, the most important definitions here are the ones I put last, which are Stanford's, which is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, because that's going to relate most closely to what we're working towards. So paradoxes and contemporary logic. And these are just the introductions from this. There's a lot, obviously there's a lot more to say about this topic. And it's something that I'm going to start researching more and more because I want to make sure I'm right when I say that identity is a paradox. So far, nobody's been able to convince me otherwise, but that's why I keep searching for answers. By paradox, one usually means a statement claiming something which goes beyond or even against common opinion, what is usually believed or held. Paradoxes form a natural object of philosophical investigation ever since the origins of rational thought. They have been invented as part of a complex arguments and tools for, refute, for refuting philosophical theses. Think of the celebrated paradoxes credit, credited to Zeno of Elia, which I uh, might do a little, I'm probably going to do a bonus episode, a premium episode on those paradoxes because they're so interesting to read concerning motion, the continuum and the opposition between unity and plurality or of the arguments entangling the notions of truth and vagueness credited to the Megarian school and Eubulides of Miletus. Paradoxes termed as insolubilia, insolubilia, thank you, I can speak English, that was, I think that was technically Latin, form also a substantial part of logical and philosophical investigations during the Middle Ages. This entry, The Paradoxes in Contemporary Logic, concentrates on the emergence of non-trivial logical themes and notions from the discussion on paradoxes at the beginning of the 20th century until 1945, and attempts to assess their importance for the development of contemporary logic. Paradoxes involving vagueness, knowledge, belief, and space and time are treated in separate entries. A terminological warning is in order. The word antimony is used below an alternative to paradox. Most paradoxes, but not all, involve contradictions. For, in, for such cases, we often use the word contradictions. Well, so that's just a, that's just a pedagogical point. And the last point, which is, which is the, most, uh, the closest thing to what we're referring to, are epistemic paradoxes, which are riddles that turn on the concept of knowledge Typically, there are conflicting, well-credentialed answers to these questions or pseudo-questions. Thus, the riddle immediately informs us of an inconsistency. In the long run, the riddle goads and guides us into correcting at least one deep error. If not directly about knowledge, then about its kindred concepts, such as justification, rational belief, and evidence. Such corrections are of interest to epistem epistemologists. Historians date the origin of epistemology to the appearance of skeptics. Hey! As manifest in Plato's dialogues featuring Socrates, epistemic paradoxes have been discussed for 2,500 years. 
Given their hardiness, some of these riddles about knowledge will be discussed for the next 2,500 years. And I completely agree with that. So epistemology is a scary word. That means how do we know something to be true? How do we know we know the thing? Because that's what philosophy is. Philosophy is thinking about how we think about things. It is writing about how we write things. It is speaking about how we speak things. It's this fascinating thing we do as humans. Identity, you're who you are, right? So in, um, in English, we ask, what is your name, right? That is, that is that, like, what's your name? That's what you would say if you were trying to introduce yourself to someone. Like, who are, like, what's your name? You know, I'm LB. In Spanish, you would ask the question, and like, not that I'm some great Spanish linguist or anything like that. My Spanish really isn't that great, unfortunately. But in Spanish, you ask the question, ¿Cómo se llama? ¿Cómo se llama? How are you called? How are you called? What are you called? Who are you? ¿Cómo se llama? In part, that makes up your identity. Right. So I could say I'm LB. How many LBs are there in the world? Probably not that many. I've noticed, I've noticed that when I introduce myself as LB, people tend to remember my name more. Unless it's a loud nightclub, then they don't know what's going on. But if um, identity, who you are matters, right? Like it's, it's, I think humans, most humans at the very least have, no, I think every human, every human needs, has a desire, a sense for belonging, a sense for community because we're communal creatures. And it is, with, and it is within that context that we create an identity. See, if you were the only human being on earth, an identity doesn't really matter because there is nothing else. There were, um, you know, in philosophy classes, you'll go through these thought experiments and some people really like them. I tend to get bored with them because I like to deal with things of practical implication, but it's, it's still worthwhile. To, it's still worthwhile to go through it uh, as an educational, as an educational tool. But in, there are these, you know, you might, one example is like, is a person who has no arms, no legs, no eyes, no mouth, no sense of smell, no sense of touch. Are they a human? It's kind of like, it's kind of interesting because you're really pushing because, because you're pushing at the question of what does it mean to be human? Like, what is it that separates us from other animals? Why do we why do we do so much more than what we observe in nature? And why are we these particularly, you know, curious creatures? And so is somebody who was born, born, right? So this is, they have never had any sense perception. Can they be called human? Well, the interesting thing is, I guess you kind of have to say maybe because we, because like the DNA would be the same, right? But is it, but is it, so you might say they're human, but they can't live a life. Another one of these would kind of be like, if, you know, what if we got rid of, what if you just grow up in the woods, right? What would you be like? And there's, you know, this, the story of Tarzan is an attempt to explore this. The story of uh, the jungle book is an attempt to explore this, right? This idea of like the feral, the feral human coming back into civilization. Of course, if let's say you were magically put on a planet and you were raised entirely by yourself with nobody else to help you, which doesn't seem like that's even possible because even like, you know, predators who hunt solo have mothers who teach them stuff early on. 
if you were if you were to be dropped on a planet like there there's no need for language there's no need for community if you're the only thing so therefore there's no need for identity so we might say that so identity comes to be within the context of society within the context of a tribe if you will within the context of a group because we are we are social creatures by definition so We're social creatures by definition, and that's how we create an identity. Sorry, as you can tell, I'm kind of I'm I'm going off the cuff here. I'm not I don't have any writing to go with. So I'm I'm you know working these things out because these are things that I kind of intuit, but I'm trying to figure out the best way to say them so I can write them. So given that, and and so identity in this, and you know, then we have to so then we introduce the idea of evolution. And so we understand that this exists in an evolutionary context, which is to be which is to say in part that it becomes that the system of tribe or community becomes more complex as time goes on. So when you were living in a tribe, your identity was very easy, right? I am so-and-so, son of so-and-so. My job is this. This is my, you know, this, my wife is this. My life is this. This is who I am. This is what I will be. Because it is expected of me. I am the blacksmith, right? I'm the lawyer. I am the farmer. I'm the warrior. I'm the leader, the king. Identity was pretty easy to figure out when the world was a less complicated place. As we move into the modern world in the 21st and then in the 21st century, especially in the context of the internet, I think, I, well, I, I know identity takes on a much more important meaning, right? Normally, you're, who you are as a person is fairly obvious. If you were born in Japan, you were a Japanese person. Okay, what if you were born in Japan, came to America, when you were just born, and then your family relocated to India when you were six. Are you Japanese? Are you American? Are you Indian? What does that matter? Well, it matters because you need to orient yourself in the world. Need to put, and if you, don't, if you don't have an orientation, if you don't have a place in the world, and you don't know where you can go from there. So it is important to establish who you are as a person and what, are, and what your existence means. I think that's fundamental. I think that's fundamental. I think if you're listening to the show, you're interested in something like that. So identity is this thing that, you know, it, it, the identity is this thing that is super important to you, but also really important to other people, right? It's not just that the identity matters to you, the person who, you know, who's choosing or who, whose identity is in question, let's say. It also matters to the people around you. Why? Well, because the world is a very complicated place. And so over time, we've developed heuristics to make sure that we can sort things very easily. <clears throat> Our brains are categorizational tools. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our brains are these tools that categorize, that is constantly categorizing things and putting things into boxes, including other people. Including other people. So Right there, right then and there, you can start to see where the paradox comes in because I can have a conception of what my identity is, and so can you. I, I think I know who I am. You think you know who I am. To what extent are those ideas congruent? To what extent do those ideas cohere? How many times have you heard from a friend or have you said yourself in the aftermath of a breakup, I thought I knew who they were. I thought I knew him. I thought I knew her, but I did. turns out I didn't, and so it's over. 
See, identity isn't isn't based on a single input. It's based on at least two, and in, in many cases, far more than that. Which is to say, you don't have complete control over what your identity is, even if you want to construct it yourself. And I think in the 21st century, we have the ability to construct an identity more so in the past. If for no other reason than we are far wealthier as a people and as a world. And the wealthier we are, the more leisure we have by definition. And so therefore, the, you know, the more time you have to reflect on things, which builds culture and builds multiple cultures. This is uh, Joseph Piper's point. So how is it? So if I think that I'm, you know, a skeptic and you think I'm a grifter, how do we reconcile that? That's the paradox. I don't think it's enough to say, well, I'm right and they're wrong. Because very few people think that they're doing the wrong thing. You might understand this in terms of political ideologies, because that's kind of a focus of the show. This was a point I wrote about, gosh, so long ago now. Kind of my introduction to skepticism. Was seeing the degree to which you know, it would, let's take the very simple terms of liberal and conservative, right? Remember the story that I just told before. So if you were to talk to somebody who's conservative and was proud of the fact that they're conservative, they're going to ascribe all positive things to conservatism and the same for liberalism or progressivism. But the liberal, or better said, the progressive to the conservative is only going to ascribe negative meaning to the conservative idea to the conservative identity. And so too, the conservative identity is going to ascribe only negative meanings to the progressive identity. So how can all of those things exist under the identity of conservative, let's say, just for the, just for the sake of succinctness? How does that occur? To me, that appears to be a paradox of a kind, one that I haven't been able to resolve except to say that we must contend with that. Which is why, again, so this, so this feeds into the idea of the pantheonic method, which we discussed last week, of how of a better way of the pantheonic approach, of how to approach the idea of exam, of how to approach the concept of examining ideas as schools of thought. All this stuff is interrelated. So that's what I got there. So, you know, just kind of, I'm I'm working these ideas out in real time for you, and hopefully you and hopefully you enjoy it. Last piece before we get out of here, I need to tell you something very important. You need to stop being poor. An exploration of how the brain works is what this piece is. The subtitle of this piece. So, introduction time. Matt Erickson of the King Peeled Show and Cyprian, formerly Vin Armani, of Counter Markets were on Clint Russell's Liberty Lockdown podcast recently. On the show, they aired their disagreements and thoughts about comedian and libertarian podcaster Dave Smith, as well as their answer to the question whether the broader liberty movement should A, engage in politics, and B, whether it should be done in the Liber Par- Libertarian Party in conjunction with the Mises Caucus. I won't be covering the entire conversation in this piece and everything that was said, Instead, I want to focus on a one-minute segment that went viral. It's really important, by the way, as we're going to kind of get into as we examine this, that I have that. I won't be, de- I won't be covering the entire conversation in this piece. 
And I'm purposefully doing that. Not just because I don't have time, but because I'm not super interested in adjudicating everything in this conversation. In fact, James Gentleman and I just kind of went through it ourselves. So when that episode releases, uh, you guys should enjoy it. I'm recording this episode right after I talk to him. Why? Because I love you so much. You, the listener. I really do. Instead, I want to focus on a one-minute segment that went viral and a tweet I sent out that got some play. Unlike my story about Steven Crowder last week, this isn't just internet drama. There are some principles worth discussing and an element of our humanity that is preventing an understanding between these personalities. So let's play the clip. Once it loads. Talk about liberty. They say, you know, that liberty is this thing that we're pursuing. We want, we want to have liberty. We're trying to get liberty and, and we just want to spread liberty. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to spread liberty. Liberty to do what? What is it that you want to, you don't, you don't have liberty. You have liberty to do something. What is it that you want to do that you can't do right now? And lots of people will point to, you know, say like a, uh, um, uh, like income. Those, oh, I want to not be taxed. Okay, well, the, the thing is, it's not that you don't want to be taxed. It's that you want to have more money than you have right now. And when you're being taxed, it's making you have less money. So why don't you make more money? And then yeah, they'll take it. But why don't you make so much money that taxation is just an inconvenience? That now you've just gotten it. You didn't have to overthrow the government. Now you just got what you wanted. Um, so, or maybe you want, you know, like, oh, I want to own, you know, XYZ guns. And I'm, I legally am not allowed to do that. Okay, so then wealthy people can bypass all of these laws you know, wealthy, politically connected people. So become wealthy and politically connected, and then you can you can do what you want. Or maybe you want to consume XYZ drug. Okay, where in the world can you go to do that? Go there. So So the tweet I sent out in response to this reads, if you think real Kingpilled, who's Matt Erickson, is dumb for arguing a solution to taxation is to make more money, you're purposefully not understanding him. It follows that applying liberty means building wealth. Cognitive dissonance is a bitch, huh? Now, in retrospect, I likely wouldn't have used the phrase solution to taxation in my tweet, but it really wasn't the crux of my point. With a tweet like this, I purposefully have layers built into the phraseology because I'm attempting to communicate a lot in 280 characters. The medium of Twitter limits what we can share which means anything you say can be misinterpreted. This is a general point that's always worth considering. As I like to say, if you choose ignorance, you can ascribe whatever context you wish to a situation. I, for one, however, don't choose ignorance. So the part in, uh, the, the, the part in particular um, that everybody was kind of going crazy over, it says that a lot of people will point to income. They'll go and say they don't want to be taxed. It's not that you don't want to be taxed. It's that you want to have more money than you have right now. And when you're being taxed, it's making you have less money. So why don't you make more money? And they'll take it. They'll take that money. But why don't you make so much money that taxation is an inconvenience? What Matt's doing is attempting to reframe the conversation of the, 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 the conversation around the, liber the libertarian point that taxation is theft. So let's get some context for this. If you didn't know, libertarians regard taxation as theft. If you want to be civil about it, you might instead say extortion or that anything beyond the necessary amount is plunder if you're like a 19th century Frenchman, aka Frederick Bastiat. 
your author, me, I, by the way, I, for the record, do have a taxationist theft pillow proudly displayed in my front room because I'm a single guy that was given to me as a Christmas present from my sister. The other point, in case you didn't know, is that libertarians are proponents of capitalism. There is certain which capitalism as, as, as understood as uh, property, you know, private ownership of the means of production, private property rights, free markets, so on and so forth. Some would call themselves free market, you know, pro- proponents of the free market. I did for a while, and I basically decided that was a useless argument because at the end of the day, people are still going to call you evil. So I'll just call myself a capitalist. There is certainly more to libertarianism than these two things, but, but these are pretty integral. And more importantly, they, for the purposes of our conversation, they are relevant to understand. The second, another piece of context is that Matt Erickson, aka Kingpilled, is the co-host of Jason Stapleton's Wealth, Power, and Influence, where they discuss, amongst other things, how the best way to achieve liberty in your life, freedom in your life, is build what Jason will refer to as nomadic wealth. I give both Jason, as full disclosure, I give both Jason and Dave my dollars. I, I'm, I'm members of both of their communities, Dave Smith and Jason Stapleton. And I'm a, ma- a member of Jason's Nomad Network and the Gas Digital Network that Dave's show is on. Now, in contrast to Jason's approach, Dave has been organizing with Michael Heiss and the LPMC to take over the Libertarian Party, thereby continuing the Ron Paul revolution. As he, and as I've said, I, I, am, I do organize with the LPMC, not in like a major way, but I am, I am a part of it. As he announced on the Joe Rogan experience, and by major, I mean like I'm not operating at the national level, just in my state. Dave is thinking about running for president on a libertarian ticket. So Dave wants, Dave is thinking about running for president as part of this libertarian takeover strategy where we can actually bring a principled libertarian message to the masses. Okay. Whereas Jason Stapleton and Matt Erickson talk about building your own, your own uh, wealth, power, and influence in your own life so that you can have more control over the things that you want to have control over. I've witnessed now, I've also witnessed firsthand, just for the record, the hardworking, successful, and professional individuals that are choosing to get involved in a political party for the first time because they believe in the liberty movement and that it has something to offer the country. I've also witnessed the awesome people who are all trying to build their own businesses in the Nomad Network. I forgot to put that into the piece, but, but I have seen that firsthand, and the, and the support in both communities does exist. So starting to see where there's a divide beginning. I have personally praised both Jason and Dave in the past for what they do, and I have been observing Matt's observations over the last year or so with curiosity, if not agreement. From my perspective, I do not see either position, that is to say organizing with the LP or building your own autonomy, as prohibiting the other when you consider how broad a movement is by definition. So why is everyone getting mad? I ask rhetorically. Cognitive dissonance, according to Psychology Today, is a term for the state of discomfort felt when two or more modes of thought contradict each other. The classing cognitions may include belief, ideas, or the knowledge that one has behaved in a certain way. The theory of cognitive dissonance proposes that people are averse to inconsistencies within their own minds. It offers one explanation for why people sometimes make an effort to adjust their thinking when their own thoughts, words, or behaviors seem to clash with each other. When one learns new information that challenges a deeply held belief, for example, or acts in a way that seems to undercut a favorable self-image, that person may feel motivated to somehow resolve the negative feeling that results, to restore cognitive consonance. 
Though a person may not always resolve cognitive dissonance, the response to it may range from ignoring the source of it to changing one's beliefs or behavior to eliminate the conflict. So we're going to leave aside the larger critiques against political activism inside of the LP that upsets many people. What Matt Erickson expertly does in the clip of love that went viral is trigger the collective cognitive dissonance of a particular segment of libertarians. The reasoning of those libertarians goes something like this. If, if taxation is theft, then anything that possibly justifies taxation or doesn't explicitly refer to it as theft is anathema, is danger, is the enemy. It literally goes against libertarian dogma. Social media amplifies this, and a point that is fairly obvious to reconcile, which is to say you as an individual should make as much money as you can, is transformed to a statement of heresy. Remember, Libertarians are capitalists, which means they should support the right of individuals to accumulate as much wealth as they can, provided it's done ethically. In another context, most would have zero issues with this idea. But when you say it's not that you don't want to be taxed, it's that you want to have more money than you have right now, you become a villain in the minds, again, of this particular segment of people. In all the responses that I had to the tweet above, right? And let's go over that tweet one more time and kind of we're going to just we're going to we're going to we're going to laser focus in on this so the guy who tweeted out the video the clip that we played before his uh the profile handle for the record is life's in the woods at life's woods i know nothing about the profile other than this i'll be honest <clears throat> so he said this is the dumbest argument i've ever heard that quote that i played before that quote that i played before so if I so I tweeted in kind of in response to that, if you think he is dumb for arguing that a solution to taxation is to make more money, you're not understanding him. So what he was the larger the larger argument, which is which he's since clarified, by the way, right? Like he's he's clarified afterwards because this stuff happens in the moment. That's that's the beauty of long form. Why it's one of the reasons why it's such an interesting medium for for the exchange of ideas. The beauty of long form is that you can just kind of go and you know we're working in the sense where we want to be on as podcasters and giving our best giving our best performance. But it is a performance, and that means that when something pops into your mind, you're just going to run with it. I, I mean, I run into this very well. You can it, it, if you the next time you listen to one of my interviews, you're going to hear this, and you're going to you're going to notice this as I as I point this out. Because one thing that I try to do is layer as much context into a point that I'm making, so much so that oftentimes I will lose the plot. I will, and you'll hear me say something like, "I lost my train," because I'll lose my I'll lose my train of thought because I'm going so. I'm going in so many directions because I'm trying to bring in because it's not it's not linear, right? It's it's like it's more gravitational. So I'm just trying to there's this gravitational pull at the center and I'm just trying to bring I'm just trying to bring all these ideas together and to serve them into something coherent. So sometimes you'll notice that if I'm trying to make a point, I'll keep going back on that point because I'm trying to say, okay, here's where I read this originally, here's what the principle of that is, here's what the people who would disagree with that say, but here is my point. And I don't always make it to here is my point. But that's what I mean when I say you're not, you're purposefully not understanding him. The context of the conversation, this isn't his, this isn't his treatise. If this was a book, if this was an article to write and, you know, something like that, then yeah, you know, it would be worthwhile to criticize and say, hey, this idea doesn't seem complete. So that's what I mean when I say you're not understanding him. You're purposefully not understanding him because it's triggering, it's triggering your cognitive dissonance. 
because the fuller context of that is the question of how do you come into the world as an individual? Now, unless you're born a libertarian, right? And you might argue that the personality type exists, and I would agree with that, but taxation is theft is not a evolutionarily instinctual thing that we all understand, right? So what he's said in other, in, in, in subsequent interviews, and I would agree with this, is like what really happens is you go and you work and you understand that you're going to get paid for your work and then you get your first paycheck. And this is obviously an allegory, right? And again, this is entirely reconcilable within libertarian thought, which is the point, which is the point that you as an individual, you know, you get your first paycheck and you see that the government's taking their, taking their, taking their piece and you say, Hey, what's up with this? Why do I have less money than I thought I was going to make? Why is the government taking, why did, why does the government take 20%? And you know, and what does, what is the, what is the standard opinion is like, well, those are the, that's the price you pay for society. And the libertarian comes in and says, you know what? They're actually stealing from you because taxation is theft. And you go, yeah, you know what? It is theft. I want less theft in my life. And by the way, that's a proposition I would agree with, but here's the thing. It's difficult to, you know, change tax law takes a long time to work your way up that high in the political system and the political hierarchy. Moreover, if you make it that high, what's to be say that you're actually going to accomplish your goal. So what, what choices are you left with? Well, one thing you can do and trust, I mean, I get into like a personal story at the end of this, but like I have had, I've had those. It's like, man, I look at that. I look at what I pay in taxes in a year and I'm like, man, what, what I, what I could do with that money, what I would have done with that money how much easier my life would have been. And I was saying that when I was making half the money that I'm making now. So what he's saying is, that's what I, so it follows that applying liberty means build wealth. That's not an exclusive statement. I'm not, I'm, I'm obviously not making an exclusive statement. The only way in which I make an exclusive statement is if you want to read that context into it. Because if I was saying that, if I was saying that liberty only means building wealth, I, I would say that. Instead, I said, it follows. It follows that the application of the idea of liberty means that you should build some kind of wealth for yourself. You should have skills that, you know, make you valuable. I've written about this throughout the pages of Been Awake, by the way. It's very important to me. It's not exclusive, but it is part of it. And I think, it is, I think it's a necessary part that you should contend with if you claim to believe in liberty. And the ending, cognitive dissonance is a bitch. In all the responses that I had to the tweet I posted above, no one addressed or asked for clarification as to why I wrote cognitive dissonance is a bitch, huh? This isn't surprising as part of cognitive dissonance is that you're going to purposefully ignore, well, not purposefully, more like unconsciously ignore the conflicting information. But it was eh, unconscious probably isn't the right word either. Let's just stick with what I said. It's surprising. Part of cognitive dissonance is that you ignore conflicting information. But it was surprising the degree to which people were completely misunderstanding the point being made in that moment. Perhaps the rest of the conversation muddied the waters too much. But, and by the way, there's plenty in that conversation that I disagree with. In fact, a lot of it. But the whole idea of pulling a clip is that what is being said in that particular moment is what's at issue. The irony is that was one of the least contentious things said in the interview from a libertarian perspective. 
I started writing content and producing a show precisely for situations like this. I, Elbi Muniz, engage in better sense making, which means I'm going to harmonize ideas when they cohere and reject ideas when they are discordant or, you know, not, not uh, the, the separate, different, whatever. The skeptical frame of mind that I endeavor to teach and demonstrate is a fantastic bulwark against cognitive dissonance. This is why skepticism is the beginning point of philosophy and what ultimately drives humanity forward. So just go make more money. Now I get it. Asserting that people should stop being poor or make more money seems overly simplistic. That doesn't mean it's wrong. I know firsthand how difficult it is to take a hard look at yourself, especially your money, your finances, your wealth, and realize you are not where you want to be. When someone reminds you that you're not where you want to be, you will react emotionally because you are in fact emotional about the situation. I'm speaking from firsthand knowledge as someone who has only recently started making enough money to overcome the mountain of student debt I accumulated in my early 20s, which I've written about and talked about in other episodes. To this day, it is a major trigger for my anxiety that I have to actively fight against. Here's the thing. None. None of my moral proclamations against the legitimate injustice of the student loan crisis changes the fact that I have to make that payment every single month. Wallowing in my misery, and God knows I wallowed, didn't make anything better. You know what did? Making more money. I found a way, and you can too. like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.